Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Hallelujah, church. Um, I'll be taking the Bible reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 19, from verse 16 to verse 30. Um, when I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you reply with, thanks be to God. Verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what... Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, Go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had, he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then would there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will, rec- will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Special welcome to you. If this is your first time, we are happy to have you in our midst. And we're in a series titled Conversation with, Conversations with Jesus. We actually just started it. And the idea is that it is through conversations that we actually get to know the kind of people that who people really are. And since Jesus is not here physically with us, we can listen in on conversations that he had with other people and hopefully know more about him and also learn more about ourselves and be changed in the process. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and ask God for his help. Let's pray together. Lord, as we've sung, we ask that you reveal yourself to us as holy.
Lord, that will see you as beautiful and glorious. That will see you of more value than every other treasure. We ask that you will lead our longing hearts to a clear ground, to a high ground and to a clear view, and will behold your glory, a glory that we cannot unsee, that will change us as we look upon you and believe. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we've been having prayer week at City Church, and how many of us participated? And personally, it has been a time, it has been amazing, it has been wonderful. It has been a time of personal renewal for me, for a lot of people in my gospel community, and I think a lot of people in church as well, because somebody went to Pastor Femi and said, let us build three tabernacles. We <laughs> <laughs> want to continue doing this every time. And so, while I was preparing for the sermon, in this, during, the, during the prayer week, I began to think about prayers, and I thought about Nigerian prayers, and that's a really common Nigerian prayer, one of the most common, actually. God, let my destiny help her. <laughs> Locate me. <laughs> because if you live in Nigeria, you need somewhere to help your destiny. <laughs> And so why you cannot predict when or how you meet that destiny helper, you can prepare for it. And one of the ways we are, we are advised to prepare for it is what is called the elevator pitch. Yeah. And so the idea behind that is that if you run into a chairman in an elevator, you want to be ready so you can sell yourself quickly to him and then he'll want to enter into further conversation with you and it will lead to him becoming your destiny helper. And so we believe that there are generally two types of conversations with destiny helpers. The first one is the one that we've just talked about. I just talked about rather. But that only works if you actually have an idea. <laughs> if you have something that is so compelling that, you know, they want to, that can appeal to them in a sense if your idea can buy their attention in a sense. But there's a second type of encounter that the gulf between you, who that person is, and what you, you have to offer is very wide. And so imagine you're a fresh graduate, job hunting. <laughs> you finished NYC, but the problem is that before you got into school, jam jammed you so much. <laughs> so much. That any course, you're like, any course they give me, I'll just take it to that I went to school. And so you heard your name had come out, and you checked the department. The course that you admitted to was underwater basket weaving. <laughs> UBW. <sighs> so it's okay. I thought I thought I'm bad pass and you 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 go and start. But not only do you study UBW in school, you actually graduate with a pass. And so if you <laughs> Nigerians will tell you if you by any chance meet a destiny helper, your elevator pitch is just four words. Sir. I beg. <laughs> Help me. And <laughs> what to be a tragedy is if you go there and you mix up the two. If you go there and start speaking big English, and people like this are always speaking big English, you can't tell him, sorry, my academic qualifications. I know that I can be an asset to your organization. Okay, come, come on, get out of this place. And somebody I hear to be like, ah, you lack self-awareness. You know nothing. You have missed the time of your visitation. And that's kind of what is happening here in this conversation with Jesus and the guy we are going to look at. Someone who thinks he's in the first category. 
but he's actually in the second category. Ironically, he's called the rich young ruler. And in this sermon titled, Jesus Cannot Be Bought, we are going to see that all of us are in the second category, and our only pitch, our only proposal, is to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, Sir, please, help me. I'm going to be looking at this under three headings, approaching Jesus, appraised by Jesus, and accepting Jesus. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Verse 16. Let's go on. Let's go on. Verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? The Bible doesn't actually call him a rich young ruler, but this, this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the title is a composite of how they describe him. So it's almost like this guy is a diamond that they're looking at from different angles, and they are just so impressed. And we know that even in the story, the disciples are impressed because in verse 13 to 15, some people had brought their children to Jesus Christ to bless them, and the disciples were like, if you don't leave this place. But this guy comes, and he, they allow him to go. And it's not hard to see why. This guy has gotten all the infinity stones. <laughs> he has wealth. He has status. The Bible says he was a ruler. He's devout, probably a ruler in synagogue. He was a high flyer. He had achieved so much at a young age. The Bible does not tell us this, but he probably was handsome. Because <laughs> we all know. And our money, the fine bubble. <laughs> This is the kind of guy that from the first day he comes into your church, you've, you've already penciled him down to be, the, be a deacon. Because <laughs> he's, so, he's, uh, he's so impressive. But you'll not do it because it will look somehow, let's just respect ourselves now, but you know that this guy, his ordination is... <laughs> he's just in front. But Jesus is not impressed at this full option guy. How does Jesus respond? Jesus says in verse 17, Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. In the account in Mark, the Mark 10, 18, But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is laying a foundation here. And what is that foundation? That any meaningful engagement, any meaningful conversation, any approach to Christ must start with a recognition of who Jesus is. Not just as a teacher. Not just as a moral example, not just a genius or a guru, but as the one who is good. Jesus is referring to good here as absolute goodness, moral perfection. Jesus is not denying his deity here. He's not saying he's not God. He's actually affirming that he's God. Because if Jesus is morally good, then it means that he is God. And if he is God, it changes everything. And it means that the things that he says actually carry weight. Jesus tells him, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? Have you ever had a conversation with someone that people are talking, but you can see that this person is not, is not listening to you? The person is just waiting so they can say their own part. Jesus has just told this guy, I am God. He doesn't ask any question. He doesn't engage with that at all. It's not like Nicodemus are saying, okay, please, can you explain this to me? No, he just goes straight. Okay, which ones? He just goes straight to where he thinks he can shine. Jesus like, okay, no problem. And Jesus tells him some of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. 
honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Summary. And the guy says, amazingly, all of these I have kept. And if you're a disciple listening in, you'll be like, ah. Because disciples have heard the sermon on the mount. They know that Jesus has said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. They know that Jesus has expanded on the commandments. Jesus has said that thou shalt not that shall not murder actually means Matthew 5 20 22 you have heard that it has said do not murder but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment again anyone who said to his brother Raka is answerable to Sanhedrin but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell by the way if you have called anybody idiots in traffic you're on this table the Lord says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus said, if I, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus said, you have heard that it has said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to them that hurt you. Disciples know that the point of the Sermon on the Mount is that the commandments are not about external compliance, but are actually about the condition of our hearts. And the rich young are claiming that he had kept all of them shows that he had never really come face to face with the demands of a righteous and holy God. He had created a self-righteousness of his own. Self-righteousness involves typically two things. We, we lower God's standard and we elevate ourselves. Lowering God's standard. We, we rather than look at God's laws as an expression of his holiness, as an expression of who God is. What we do is that we pick and choose the ones that we think that we are good at. And discard the rest. But like a guy called Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was one of the founding fathers of the US. And the guy literally said, I don't agree with this, I don't agree with this. And he carried a knife and cut out parts of the Bible and pasted into his own Bible. And to show that he did it with his chest, his full chest, he did it in four languages. <laughs> and so that's the exact same thing we do. We pray, we pick and choose. Jesus says, Turn the other cheek on my business. If you're calling with someone, leave your offering at the altar and go and reconcile with that person. Not my business. And how do we know we are doing this? Whenever we feel that our spiritual life, whenever we feel like we have earned God's favor by the things that we do, you can be sure that you have lowered God's standard. The other thing we do is to elevate ourselves. And if this happens when we compare ourselves with other people, and if you look hard enough, you'll see someone that is doing better than. You see someone that you know more theology than. You see people whose kids misbehave more than your kids. You see people who exaggerate on LinkedIn. <laughs> you see people who sin more obviously than you do. And we'll shake our heads at them. We'll look down our noses at them and say, wow, I'm not doing so badly. And of course, we'll still acknowledge our need for God. Of course, we'll come, and come to church and confess in every Sunday. But we are more like the person that is owing money. And you've been able to gather some of it. And so when you're pitching, saying, I need you to help me to complete it, you're saying, see what I've done. And so because I've been able to gather some of it, I am somehow deserving of more mercy. And that's actually a good thing if you're owing actual money. You should try to do something about it. But if... <laughs> if... If you're doing this to God... It's a different thing altogether. When we justify ourselves, like an author says, Jesus becomes a part-time savior of part-time sinners who are able to trust that some of their works are good and acceptable to God. 
When we do this, we are saying that Jesus becomes a part-time savior of part-time sinners who are able to trust that some of their works are good and acceptable to God. But despite his confidence about his performance, he asks a curious question in verse 20. What do I still lack? Some people believe that he's saying this because he's prompting Jesus to give him his accolades. To say, he's actually saying, I deserve some accolades. But no, that he wants Jesus to say, call his disciples together and say, if you go to heaven, write this down. <laughs> and you don't see him there. You have gone to hell. You are not in heaven. Because everything that a man can do to secure his place in eternal life, he has done it. <laughs> he has done it. He has done it. But I don't think that's what is going on. I think what is going on is something else. And this is actually common to every human being. There's a niggling doubt. He actually knows that he lacks something. That's a video I saw a few weeks ago. It was mind-blowing. So apparently, if you have an old car, it was about collection kits for cars. And so if you have an old car, how this um, you can actually sort of upgrade your car. And so there was a 2004 Lexus. Yeah. That was upgraded to a 2020 Prado. No, 2020 Land Cruiser. So this is what it looked like, but after they finished. The soundtrack is a weird song, so let's just watch. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. My cousin that sent me the video was like, how is this possibly legal? And you're driving this car, and everybody's like, oh no, with dollar exchange rate, this guy is using a 2020 car. People get money for this Lagos, so. In this economy, people are launching cars. But the problem with this is that you, you know. You know that you're driving a 2004 car. And maybe this is the reason why we are so obsessed with continually being perceived as impressive. We are always dominating conversations, always pushing ourselves in front. We always want to have the latest gadgets. We always want to have more likes. We always want to achieve this, but we are not satisfied. We want to go on to the next one. Always trying to outdo others is that we are trying to silence that voice in us that is saying, you lack something. You lack something. You lack something. But, and we can try to quiet it, but it never, it's never quiet for, for it's, not, it's never quiet permanently because self-justification is like Adam and Eve after they had seen they tied leaves and sold for themselves. But those leaves are already withering and dying because they've already been cut off from the source of life. And so he approaches Jesus and pitches to him. He says, I admit I lack something. But I've also done very well. See all the milestones I've achieved. All these I have kept. I just need that extra push. Just tell me what good thing I can do. How does Jesus respond? My second point. Praise by Jesus. Jesus says in verse 21, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, Jesus does not command everybody to sell their possessions. We know that Zacchaeus was, Jesus did not command him to sell everything. Jesus had friends, Mary and Martha, they had a house. 
And so Jesus will not command all his followers to sell everything they have. So what is really going on here? And Jesus will comment about wealth in the next few passage verses, but I want to be clear that Jesus is not against wealth. Wealth is a gift from God. So what is Jesus doing? I was thinking the other day about how technology can move so fast and it can really, distru- really disrupt a lot of stuff. And when I was growing up, I learned how to type with a typewriter. <laughs> and you know how typewriters work, as in like hammer action, if you're old enough. Like hammer action to against an inked ribbon that will now make an impression on the, on the paper. And if you make a mistake, you either junk what you've been doing or you get correction fluid and tip exit. So imagine that you're a typist and you've heard about these new things called computers that you can actually use different fonts. You can do a lot more stuff with it. And you've seen one from far. You can see that the keyboard looks the same. You can see ASDF, JKL, semicolon. <laughs> and you're like, I think I can pivot. So you start to pray, God, my destiny helper, locate me. God, let my destiny helper locate me. And he actually locates you. And so you tell him that I need money to upgrade to a computer. But... There are some things that I have that we can also use for this upgrade. And it's like, explain more. So you say, ah, because I know how to plan ahead. I have boxes of spare ribbons from my typewriter that we can use. I have correction fluid, packets of correction fluid that we can use. So you don't have to put that one in the budget. That's already taken care of. The keyboard looks the same. So we can take the keyboard of the typewriter and and fix it into the computer. So the budget for this project is not so, it has come down. I've optimized for you, cost savings. The guy will look at you. If he does not tell to get out of his sight, he will look at you and tell you, if you really want a computer, we'll have to junk all of this. Not just the spares you've gathered, but your typewriter itself has to go. I know you think it looks similar, but none of this actually matters as far as the computer is concerned. And that's what Jesus is telling him. Jesus is stripping him of everything he could possibly use as grounds to earn favor before God. Jesus is telling him that his wealth, his power, his social standing mean nothing as far as eternal life is concerned. And so you have to let them go. Because eternal life is not a matter of upgrading what you have, but it's a complete transformation into something else. Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, shall now see or enter into the kingdom of God. But we see also that Jesus does not just tell him to sell everything, but Jesus calls him to follow him and offers him treasure in heaven. You see, Jesus is not just asking him to give up as much as he's actually offering him something, to take something much bigger. Yes, it's going to be a sacrifice to give up all of that, but Jesus is saying there is a reward that is so much more than everything that you're going to give up. But the guy is hesitant. He's hesitant. He's hesitating. He has a value problem because he values his riches and everything he has as greater treasure than what Jesus is actually offering him. But underneath that value problem is a trust problem because it goes back to Jesus' first question. Why do you say, call me good? There's only one who is good. Because this conversation, that is, this exchange that's going on only makes sense if Jesus is actually God. If Jesus can actually deliver on the promise that he's given him. 
And that's exactly how Abraham was thinking when God told him to sacrifice Isaac. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Here's how Abraham was thinking. God is trustworthy and has made a, sacrifice, a promise about Isaac. God is asking me, that same God is asking me to kill Isaac. Therefore, it must mean that God wants to resurrect Isaac from the dead. So I'll go ahead and do it. Our tests and trials are really about the faithfulness of God. Are really about the goodness of Jesus. And when we are faced with ending a relationship that we really love the person, because the person is not a Christian. When we are faced with lying and cheating to get a job that we really need. When every day of our lives when we are tempted to be anxious and bitter and prideful and lustful. What is true in our stake is this. Am I going to trust God's goodness? Or will I hold on to what I can see before me? And the man is thinking, he's thinking, he's thinking. What if I fly? What if I fail or I fall? What, what if I fly? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And we see one of the saddest passages in scripture after he makes his decision. Verse 22, he walked away grieving for he owned much property. The rich young ruler said he had kept all the commandments, but by his inability to give up his wealth, he revealed that despite that claim, even the very first commandment he had not kept. Thou shalt have no other gods before me because whatever we hold on to for our hope and happiness, for our security and significance, that is truly our God. And even though money can be an idol, it's more of a gatekeeper to the deep idols of our hearts. The thing about money is that money flows in the direction of what it is that we truly worship. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, that where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And so we can use our attitudes towards money as a diagnostic tool to actually see whether we are worshipping something else, whether we are drifting into idolatry. And this works. The good part is that this works whether or not you have money. And so if your deep idol is comfort and you have money, you always be stingy. You never give people. You always spend stuff on yourself. If your idol is comfort and you don't have money, you always be anxious about money. Always be anxious about money. If your idol is control and you have money, you will be generous, but your generosity has strings attached. And so you're giving a church, but nobody can rebuke you because if they rebuke you, you will leave the church. Can't you see how much my offering is? How dare you? So you give because you want to use it as a tool to control people around you. Sometimes we do this with God. We want to control God. And it's kind of the mentality sometimes behind seed sowing. If I give this, then I can control God to give me this back. If I give God this, then I can have control over my health. I can have control over this and that. We are giving, we are giving, but we are giving conditions because we want to control the things around us. In fact, in the Bible, there was a guy called Simon that literally tried to buy the Holy Spirit with money. He offered money. Give me this Holy Spirit. I'll pay you. But if you don't have money and your idol is controlled, you always be frustrated. When you don't have money, when your, your bank account is low, your relationship with your spouse suffers. You're always short-tempered. You're always irritable and frustrated because you, don't, you cannot see yourself exerting control because you don't have money at this time. If your idol is significance and approval and you have money, you spend it on status symbols. 
And not just because you like them, but because you want to be noticed. You want people to say, you're the man. Or you're the woman. If you wear your new shoes and nobody notices that the bottoms are red. <laughs> I feel like, why can't people notice? Why can't people notice it? But if you don't have money, you also spend money on status symbols. You will be living a lifestyle you cannot afford. You live above your means. You will be envious of people that have money. You always look at everything through the prism of your lack of money. Ah, why did they talk to me like that? Because I don't have money. <laughs> oh, this person in church, they will not treat them like that because they have money. But me, it's me because I don't have money. They want to talk to me anyhow because I don't have money. And we are envious about them. This person is, is trying, is doing something. And you be like, ah, I'm sure that he's beating his wife. Because money is not everything, no, it's not everything. <laughs> You're envious of people that have money. And there's a third type of person looking down on both of them. Because he has built a self-righteousness based on his right attitude towards money. And so if it was in Jesus' Bible, he's like, thank God, God, I thank you that I'm not like the Pharisee or the tax collector. <sighs> what did the rich young ruler's attitude Toward money, reveal about the deep idols of his heart. I have no idea. But the main question is what does your attitude toward money reveal about what you truly worship? In verse 23, Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I say, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this must have been mind-boggling to the disciples. In fact, verse 25 says, they were greatly astonished. And then they asked, who then can be saved? You see, in Judaism, and also you can see this in the Old Testament, wealth was a sign of God's favor. And so the people that had money in that society were looked at people as, as people that were close to God. And you know, the, the Jews as a nation were the nations that were closer to God in terms of people that God has shown favor. So the rich young ruler and people in his class were actually like the best of the best. If life was a contest or eternal life was a contest, the rich young ruler would have been Usain Bolt for the running contest. But he fails woefully because God's standards are so high that our righteousness are filthy rags before him. At our leaves, our fig leaves of self-righteousness, we have crafted so finely, wither and burn up before the consuming fire of a holy and just God. And what the disciples are saying is this, if Usain Bolt is not fast enough, what hope does an overweight asthmatic have? If the best of the best is not good enough, who then? can be saved. And Jesus answers them, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. My third point, accepting Jesus. How does this work? If only a man could earn eternal life and no man is good enough, how does God make the impossible possible without violating his law? But what if, my five-year-old would say, God had an idea. What if there was a man who was also God? 
As a man, he will be good, qualified to enter into the contest and compete for eternal life. But as God, he will actually be good enough to actually win the prize. And so the Bible says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. Jesus, the God-man, the one who is good, obeyed God's law perfectly. But not only that, he bore the just punishment for our sins by dying on a cross. And he said, everyone who believes in me, who looks up to me, will not perish, but have everlasting life. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, God makes garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothes them. God takes away the withered and dying fig leaves of self-righteousness that they had put around them and gave them something permanent, but it came at the cost of a life. And the same thing that happened to us, Peter says, for you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the entryway of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or default or defect. Do you see that in Christ, God says, all this while you have been trying to buy my attention, all this while you have been trying to win my favor, but it was really me that needed to buy you. You needed, to, you needed me to redeem you. You needed me to redeem you. But it's possible to be a Christian, to look to Christ for salvation and lose sight of the undeserved grace of God. It's possible to start as a Christian and try to complete in the flesh Verse 27, Peter is asking, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? We are not at the rich young ruler. We did not hesitate. We, we, we gave it all for Christ. Surely we deserve some accolades. Surely we deserve something for doing this. We've paid our dues. We've paid it in full. And so we can start by grace and slip into a mindset of what we've earned from God. We had a series about this in Galatians. Which is why we must remember the gospel every day. We can never outgrow our need for the gospel. Emmanuel preached a sermon a while back titled The Way In Is The Way On. He said, the gospel that saves us is the same gospel that leads us and is the same gospel that will take us home. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again. Now when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us. Not because of what's done in righteousness. Not because we met him halfway. But according to his mercy. That's a hymn that says, My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood on righteousness. But I think for people like me, are always tempted to present their good works to God, to say, I'm living a righteous life, so I deserve something for God. It may be helpful, it may be more helpful for me to sing that hymn like this. My hope is built on nothing more. My hope is built on nothing more than Jesus' blood on righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest stream, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I dare not trust the sweetest stream, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What does a life that is built on the gospel look like? It looks like us learning to view the failures of other people, not as an opportunity to look down on them. Not as an opportunity to exhibit self-righteousness, but responding to their failures with grace. It looks like being genuinely happy for people that are succeeding because you're not comparing yourself to them. You're secure in your identity in Christ. It looks like being radically generous with your resources and giftings and talents, not to control others, but to serve them. And it's interesting how the passage of verse starts in verse 16 with a guy trying to gain eternal life, to earn eternal life. He says, what must I do to get eternal life? 
But in verse 29, he ends with a family of people inheriting eternal life. Because the one thing you cannot do about family is to earn your way into it. The only way any of them gets in is to say, Sir, help me. The only way, the only way any of them stay in is to say, Sir, please help me. And when our faith has become sight and we go to heaven and receive the rewards that God gives us, what do we say? We say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forevermore. We do not deserve this. He is the one that is worthy of all glory and adoration and praise. Hallelujah to God. And so for endless days we will sing the praises of Jesus who is the true and greater rich young ruler. He's the one who was rich beyond all splendor, but for love's sake he became poor. He's the one who was God beyond all praising, but for love's sake he became man. The one who was powerful beyond all measure, but for love's sake he became rich. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he was rich, but yet for your sake he became poor, that you may become, through his poverty, you may become rich. for listening to the gospel in lagos we pray you've been blessed by this message to learn more about city church visit www.citychurchlagos.com city church love jesus love people love lagos